Now, in the second part, I want to take an example of what we've been talking about and then enlarge on it a bit. Elijah and the true nature of ministry. Remember I told you that a few years ago I tried to write a book, uh, a commentary on the whole of Revelation and just couldn't do it because I, I couldn't do it with integrity and, and I'm not going to write just to write. Well, I tried four or five years, well, six, seven years ago now to write a, a, um, a biographical book on Elijah. And I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. Now, he's in 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19. That's his story. And then again, he's raptured out or caught up <coughs> in 2 Kings 2. And that's really all the research you have to do. Just about. There are New Testament passages that reference him. Uh, so it should have been pretty easy, I thought. And others have done it and done it magnificently. But I just couldn't do it. And the reason was that he was too good. He was too perfect. He, was, uh, he made no mistakes. Everything he did was right on the money, right on target. Boom, boom, boom. I mean, I mean it seems like all God had to do was think and look, and Elijah went and did it. Well, that's not who I am. I, I write well on David. I can really write on David. I've written two books on David, and they're two of my bestsellers. But um, he was just too perfect for me. I, I couldn't, I just, I, I was bored. And I quit, and I threw it away. And um, now I may, I may pick it up again. Because I see some things now that I didn't see then. In this chapter, I'm not going to read the, the passages, but in this chapter, uh, we see how God calls out and uses a person as an instrument of ministry. I want to, I want to talk to us now about how God calls and uses a person in ministry. Now, I'm talking, I mean, this person could be a model. I mean, a runway model. This person uh, could be a, a soldier in the army or a, an executive in Wall Street. Or he could be a preacher of the gospel, whatever. Those things are adiaphora, we used to say. That's a, that's a term that is out of the Bible. It means optional, whatever we do. We all can have the same calling from God. You don't have to preach to be a minister. We're not all called to be preachers, but we're all called to be ministers. Three things we're going to look at here. We'll see if God first responds to the state of his own people. He looks at what the needs are. Then he rises up in divine discontent to do something about it, to intervene, to intervene. And then finally, this is what he always does. He lays his hand on a human instrument of recovery. You see, God's SOP, and it's necessary if he's going to be a just God, because you see, a man lost this thing, and now man has to Restore it. 
God didn't lose it. Man lost it. Adam lost it. Gave it away. Because he wanted something else more. He wanted Eve more. So God, he could, he could at any point. He's got the power. He got the ability. He could just go and demolish the devil and demolish the principality. He could just flick his wrist and they'd be gone. If he's got a wrist, they'd be done. But that would be unjust. Man lost it. It's got to come back to God through man. Particularly if man is going to rule it in the eternal purpose of God in eternity. Do you understand me? That makes sense? Of course it makes sense. It underlies the whole of Revelation. Now, Elijah represents God's instrument of recovery. A called man. That's what he is. In God's dealings with Elijah, we can see the principles by which God makes his chosen one an effective servant to accomplish his purpose. Now, see, this is what I'm after. That first session was a setup. This is what I'm after. Principle one is the sovereign choice of God. The sovereign choice of God. Do you have underlinings in that bulletin? Yes, but you've got the answers in the underlines. I gave you the teacher's <laughs> syllabus. You've got the teacher's syllabus. You guys, there is never an adequate natural explanation for the choice and appointment by God of his servants. Now, listen to this. Think with me. We can never say, oh, God chose, chose him because he's brilliant. Or God chose him because he's eloquent. Or God chose him because he's good looking. Or God... There are usually qualities in the life of a called person that will be developed and sanctified and governed by the resident Holy Spirit that will be great and will become greater. But God's choice of an instrument, please hear this. Most people that don't preach think, well, oh yes, I see why God chose him instead of me. You, don't, you, you can never see why God chose him instead of you. There isn't any natural talent or cleverness or superiority of one person over another that will make God choose that person instead of the other one. By natural, I mean self-developed, soulish, carnal, man-made. In other words, I went to school and I've got two doctor's degrees, so surely God's going to call me. That's stupid. God's going to call whom he wills. 
He's going to lay hands on whom he wills. No matter whether he's qualified or not. God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. He qualifies the called. God chooses whom he wills, not whom we think he ought to, to be his servant, his instrument of eternal purpose. Now here's principle number two, point B. Not only is the choice totally God's choice to choose, but the chosen instrument must be controlled and disciplined and led by the Spirit continually. Now, most of what I'm going to say centers upon that statement. If this is not the case, now hear, hear this, please. If this is not the case, that servant of God who starts out so wonderfully and humbly will, I didn't say might, I didn't say could, I said will, inevitably will, begin to learn principles of spiritual success. And usually without realizing it, he will begin to follow those directions from his own mind and his own soul instead of the God of his spirit. Did you all get that? That's one of the most profound statements I've ever written. And by the way, if I appear to be reading my, I wrote every word of this. I have a right to read it if I want to. God is the father of our spirits. We're responsible for our souls. We're responsible for our bodies. We're responsible for everything natural about us. God's intent and motive, uh, this man's intent and motive will be good. It'll be godly, maybe even noble or admirable. But if not led by God continuously, he will inevitably substitute the good for the will of God a good thing for the God thing. I built a university. I, I, made it, I got it qualified. I got it accredited. I operated it for 10 years. God never once told me to do it. But I looked at my town. I looked at my profits in my ministry. I had more money than I knew how to spend. And I said, I want to give something back to my birthplace. And so I bought a building, $4 million. And I invested in a faculty, 10 more million. Because it was a good thing, it was a giving thing, it was a loving thing to do. But God never told me to do it. I was God's man. I knew what God wanted. He wanted his gospel in that city. He wanted men and women of God to be trained 
And so I said, how can I be wrong? I never heard a word from God on it. But I did it. I did it. And after 10 years, I'd lost $10 million. $5 million. And I had to close it. So I'm talking to you out of bitter experience here. Elijah seems to have been perfect in his humility right up to the end of his life. Like I told you, he was so perfect I, wouldn't, I didn't want to write about him. But at the end of his ministry and at the end of his life, he lost his focus on God as the actor and looked at his own ministry as the center of God's purpose in his world. Look at him in 1 Kings 19.10. So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. You see, he'd become God's man. He'd become the center. He had become something in himself. Now I want you to come to Roman numeral two with me, and let's look at Elijah. There's no doubt about God's choice of Elijah. He was a Tishbite. That means the other side of the tracks. He was born on the wrong side of the tracks. He was an ignorant shepherd who tended sheep and goats. He had never even visited Israel or seen Jerusalem when God called him and gave him a message and sent him to the house of Ahab. All throughout his storied career, he's led and governed by God and disciplined by the Holy Spirit. I mean, it is incredible. In all of this, he never became something in himself. But everything was God at work, not Elijah at work. Listen, it's not enough to know what God's purpose in a situation is. It's not hard to have the knowledge of what God wants to do. I knew what God wanted to do in my town. I was going to help him. I was going to give him an opportunity to really get it done by becoming the third university in our city. That knowledge of what God wants to do is enormously important, but it's not enough in itself. And that's where I made my mistake. I said, I know what God wants to do. I know, I know, I, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna make it easy for him. I made it easy for him, I guess, but not for me. <laughs> Tore my guts out. God must quicken us and deal with us in his purpose at every step. Every step. 
God deals with us one step at a time. Most of you, many of you, how many of you play golf? How many of you like golf? Play golf sometime. Sure, sure. Every good golfer knows that tournaments are won one shot at a time. You must never take your last bad shot into your next stroke. If you do, you're going to have two bad shots <laughs> and get further off your purpose. We make a mistake if we think that it's enough to know what God wants to do and then proceed to do it on our own. Thomas Zimmerman, the head for 25 years of the Assemblies of God, where I was ordained a minister, he taught me that 90% of the will of God is timing. He's saying the same thing that I'm saying to you now. God leads us one step at a time. Just because you know what God wants doesn't mean that you know when he wants it and where and with whom. We don't just need general guidance and anointing. We need specific guidance and anointing all the way along the way. Just because something is broken does not constitute a call for you to fix it. I said my town is broken. My town has a lot of humanistic knowledge, but it needs a spiritual university. And so I'm going to fix it. And I'm the one that got fixed. They shut me down. The city fathers sent word, close him down. We don't want him. And they could give me no reason. That's another story. Now I want to talk to you a little bit about God's dealings and our understanding. Do we have to understand what God is doing all the time in order to obey him? I hope not. If God is dealing with us as sinners to clean up our lives of certain personal sins and faults, we understand his specificity. But as sent instruments, and this was my story, most of us who know God and his ways just want to get on with it. I want to just get on with it. Here is where many a sincere man or woman of God can run right off the rails of God's purpose. I did it, I know. Sometimes we're taken into a realm where we don't understand what the Lord is doing with us, why he takes certain steps with us. We're out of our depth, baffled and forced to either do the good thing or wait to do the God thing. See, I wasn't willing to wait for the God thing. I had, I had, a, I had a tiger by the tail on a downhill pull and, and I was ready to go. There was a little ego in there, too. We just have to move with God, and we have to trust him to know where he's going. And this is all related to his purpose. And the explanation lies ahead, and we'll get it when we get there. We walk by faith and not by sight. Fred Price taught us that. 
I want to tell you a true story. True story. I know it to be a true story about God's dealings and our understanding. And if I don't get much farther than this, I'm fine. David Duplessis, how many of you have heard of him? David Duplessis was Mr. Pentecost. He was a little South African, just about that tall. And for some reason, he loved me. I don't know why he loved me, but he did. He had absolutely no reason, but he did. He loved me. And when I, was, when I, was, when I became the president of the Assemblies of God Seminary, I went there, we only had one, uh, he showed up from South Africa for my inaugural. I mean, I didn't even know he was coming. He showed up for my inaugural. He was Mr. Pentecost of the 20th century. He opened up the Catholic-Protestant dialogue on the Holy Spirit. And he invited me to the very first conference. Well, he was a member of my denomination. And for some reason, they dismissed him. Took away his ministerial credentials. Broke his heart, crushed his spirit. All he ever wanted to do in life was preach the gospel and love people. He didn't know what to do, so he boarded a ship back to his native South Africa. Late one night on deck, desperately alone, crying, weeping. I know, I was, I was there. They dismissed me too. I went through all of that, the trauma. And I had my, I had my chiropractic uh, DO doctor uh, put his knees in my shoulders just, and beat with his fist just to cause the muscles to release the stress and the horror of being dismissed from the denomination you love. Late one night, he was out on deck desperately alone. He walked over to the side of the ship and he climbed partway up the side of the ship in order to jump off. End his brokenness and his misery. And out of the darkness, there came a voice. Don't do that, David. And it scared him. He turned loose, almost fell. When he climbed down and looked, he looked into the face of Smith Wigglesworth. One of the greatest men of all time. A plumber educated through the third grade who knew more about walking with God than just about anybody else on the planet. Don't do that, David. David came down horrified, looked and squinted till he made out who it was, Smith Wigglesworth, his model, his idol. After they had hugged and loved on each other, he asked Wigglesworth a question, what in the world are you doing on this ship, Smith? Here's Wigglesworth's answer. I did not know until now. God told me, take this ship. I did not ask why. I simply obeyed. Now I understand why. 
even a choice instrument of God like Smith Wigglesworth, sovereignly called and commissioned, one of the greatest men of faith you'll ever read about, while knowing God's purpose still needed to be kept and led and guided every step in the government of the Holy Spirit. David Duplessis has won a hundred times more people to Christ than Smith Wigglesworth ever did. The Lord doesn't turn even his greatest servants loose with an idea or a vision. Even a vision from God, listen to me, is faulty because it's your vision and it's in a faulty vessel. You understand me? Even a conviction from God is faulty. He doesn't liberate even his most mightily used instruments to take a free course. Even though they might know God's overall purpose. Frank Sinatra can sing, I did it my way, but not you and me. We've got to do it his way. And it doesn't mean just knowing the general direction. It means having his leadership step by step. We've got to stay close and responsive to the whispers of the Spirit. What would have happened if Wigglesworth had said, I don't need that ship? There would have been no duplicy who literally shook the 20th century for Christ. His name will go down in history along with that of Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Wesley. A life led by God step by step includes three things, and with this I'm done. Number one, it includes secret preparation. Every ministry of authority must be birthed in secret preparation before it comes out in public expression. What does that mean? It means, look at me, God is going to beat the devil out of you before he turns you loose to represent him to his world. God has got to operate on you before he can use you to operate on somebody else. James 5, 17 and 18 says this. Now look, this is not mentioned in the Old Testament in, in Elijah's history. But look at what the Holy Ghost, who is just as inspired in the in New Testament as he is in the Old, said... Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. The new King James I'm reading. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and earth produced its fruit. Now look, this is not mentioned in the Old Testament. We're not told that in the Old Testament. But God told James, 
what went on behind the scenes. In fact, think about this. Elijah started his ministry with a statement, with an announcement. You know what he did? He went from those stinking, smelling goats and sheep in Tishbe across Judea and into Jerusalem, and he stood there in the capital of King Ahab, and he made an announcement as the first act of his ministry. This was his first sermon. See, it's only sermon that he ever preached. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. Remember, nothing had happened now. There shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. He started his ministry there. How many of you would like that to be your first ministry? I am going to take control of the climates of the world. That's what Elijah did. That's the faith he walked in. All ministry of divine authority, no matter where it is, how big it is, in what sphere it is, has its beginning hidden from the public eye in a secret place with God. Preparation in secret must always precede expression in public. Number two, the second ingredient of a life led step by step from God is separation from the soul life. Separation from the soul life. You'll find this in verses 2 and 3 of 1 Kings 17. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. Now the King James says it better. The King James says, Hide thyself by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. Now the brook Cherith was a tributary that flowed into the Jordan. Keep that in your mind. It was a tributary that made up the waters of the Jordan River. Now here's what God said to him. Hide yourself, your ego, your soulish drives, your demands, your pride, your arrogance. Hide yourself. Bury yourself in Cherith. What does Cherith mean? It means cut off. It means separate. It means quit living that soul life in the secret place. In the secret place, liberate yourself from the soul life. Cherith flowed into the Jordan. What does the Jordan mean? Throughout the Bible, it means the self-life poured out. Pouring out of the self-life. The greatest enemy of the spirit life is the soul life. Our greatest enemies are not people. Our greatest enemies are not demons. Our greatest enemies, our greatest enemies are not Satan. Our greatest enemies 
is us. Our ego, our self-life, the soul over the spirit. This is the central teaching of the great watchman Nee's whole ministry. This is the greatest battle of them all, the soul versus the spirit. Secret preparation. Soul separation. And last but not least, adjustability. I didn't say flexibility. Flexibility means you don't have a backbone. Adjustability means you do have a backbone, but you're going to bend it yourself. Adjustability. And it happened after a while. Listen now. Where did God tell him to go? Cherith. It happened after a while that the brook, Cherith, dried up. Because there had been no rain in the land. Who did that? Elijah. He was the cause of the brook drying up. But the brook was his source of salvation and life. Listen to me. Yesterday's blessings and yesterday's answers to prayer can become today's death trap if you depend on it instead of him. I'm going to say it again. Yesterday's blessings and yesterday's answers to prayer can become today's death trap if you depend on it instead of him. Are you all hearing me? God does not change his ultimate purpose, but he does change his methodology. He doesn't change his what, but he's always changing his what, his how. He's a moving, speaking, active God, always on time and always in touch. And the instrument of God must always be pliable, adjustable, not flexible, but adjustable, vulnerable, to give him a ready and immediate response. He has, if, if this instrument has no agenda apart from God, then God will not have to break him. Jesus said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. The instrument of God, the person who is going to be a part of the ecclesia, the person who is going to rule and reign with God forever, will be a person who is pliable and moldable and mobile in the hands of God. Here's my last point. So we must be ready in spirit for our God to do anything he desires with us. We should never feel that there's a contradiction when the Lord having directed us in one way now changes course and directs us in another. 
If you're dependent on the brook, you'll end in utter confusion when your God-given brook dries up. Your ravens stop flying. But if you're dependent not on the supply, but on the supplier, then let all the brooks dry up and you're going to be okay. It's terrifying, but it's a test and a call to a higher place. Dependence on the Lord This may be the most important statement I'll make all night. Dependence on the Lord is the governing and abiding law of true spiritual power. Elijah was adjustable so God could lead him on to greater dimensions of power. The Lord allowed the brook to dry up, not because he wanted to punish Elijah, but because he had something more and even greater for his servant to learn and accomplish. So he took him from Cherith, cut yourself off, hide yourself away from, to Zarephath, the place of testing and refining and growing. It was in Zarephath that he learned the principles of multiplication. You remember when he taught the widow woman the principles of first fruit? Bake me a cake first. I know you only have enough for two cakes. Bake me a cake first. And then your cruise of oil will never run dry. And your barrel of flour will never be empty. She did it. And they all flourished. Guess what? That brook dried up too. And the woman's only child died. Elijah, knowing what God was doing, he wasn't punishing him. He wasn't putting him through the mill. He was leading him higher and better. He called that boy, got him up in his arms, took him onto his own bed, lay down on him, breathed into him and gave him life again. The power of resurrection. Nobody in the Old Testament has ever done anything more than that as a man or a woman of God. And it's more about Elijah. And I guess I'm going to have to write the book after all. But this is enough for now. Elijah had a mindset for war. For war. He modeled an apostolic warfare ministry. First, he was sovereignly chosen. Don't go if you're not called. You can't do this by yourself. If it all if all it costs you is ten million, it was ten by the way, ten million dollars, you get off cheap. He followed God's lead step by step not just his idea of God's call. And number three, his secrets of success were secret preparation before public expression, a life of intercession with God. 
He walked with God, talked with God. A life of spirit rule, separation from the soul life. And a life of adjustability. He was pliable. 